You're listening to KRUI 89.7 Iowa City. Welcome to Bijou Banter, produced by the Bijou Film Board, a student-run organization at the University of Iowa dedicated to the exhibition of provocative and engaging cinema. Since 2013, Bijou has assisted with the programming and operation of Film Scene, a nonprofit cinema in downtown Iowa City. As a disclaimer, all of the opinions expressed during Bijou Banter are those of the hosts and our guests, and not those of KRUI or the University of Iowa. It's Friday, February 12th, 2016, and in this week's show, we'll be discussing three films that are currently playing or about to open at Film Scene. Our lineup includes Songs from the North, which plays at Film Scene Tuesday, February 16th at 6 p.m. as part of Bijou Film Forum. Next, we'll be discussing 10 Things I Hate About You, which plays at Film Scene tomorrow night, February 13th at 11 p.m. as part of Bijou After Hours. Finally, we'll be discussing Brooklyn, which opens at Film Scene Today and will play throughout the weekend and following week. Joining us in our third segment to discuss the uh, to discuss Brooklyn is UI grad, current law student, and film lover John Rigby. Before we begin to banter, I should introduce my co-hosts. We have Catherine Steinbach. Welcome, Catherine. Hi, glad to be here. And Chongmin Yu. Welcome, Chongmin. Hello, everyone. And I'm Leah Vonderheide. I should mention that all three of us are Film Studies PhD students in UI's Department of Cinematic Arts. Let's start with our first film. Songs from the North is Soon Mi Yu's essay film on North Korea, a place that has long captured the imagination of the South Korean-born filmmaker. There is no voiceover in the film to explain Yu's fascination with the country, but her first intertitles read, quote, This longing all my life for a place I was not permitted to go until recently. How do you explain it? It was a land of evil, and yet as sacred as your mother's womb. Songs from the North mixes archival materials with footage shot in the country over the course of four years and three visits. In a collage-like account, you deftly considers the historical collisions of power and violence that created the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, as well as the everydayness of people's lives in the country today, from bus drivers to students, barmaids to tourists. Yu also examines the cult of personality around, around Kim Il-sung, as well as his son and successor, Kim Jong-il, and now his grandson and successor, Kim Jong-un. There is no doubt that the filmmaker is unsettled by the country's fixation on asserting its authority, but Yu makes no attempt to judge or indict. She simply observes and documents. The resulting film is both intimate and whimsical and reminded me of one of Chris Marker's earliest films, Sunday in Peking, from 1956, which, as perhaps all successful essay films, indicates an encounter between the self and the public domain. So, comrade banterers, <laughs> I'd like to know first how you feel about the genre, genre of the essay film generally, and second, your feelings on Songs from the North specifically as an essay film. Well, I do like essay films in general, but sometimes uh, I feel like filmmakers can get too... Uh, indulgent with his or her own experiences uh, with uh, the observations he or she made uh, with the place. And I think that's exactly why I would say Chris Marker is one of the few filmmakers that can achieve that kind of delicate balance between uh, your or his own reflection uh, about certain issues, public issues like okay, communist regimes or nineteen sixty eight student movement or etc. And you know um, his personal feelings or personal allegiance towards those issues. And I do like songs from the north. I think uh, it, it, it well, it, it is a very scathing critique of of North uh, North Korea for me. For some reason, I think. I mean, obviously, it is not um, as neutral as the director wants it to be, I think. And because there's always these very conflicting emotions are surging through this kind of separation and division of a country, I think like Taiwanese people usually have that kind of sentiments toward China, too. So I, I do like the film, I think. Yeah, I really, I liked it. Um, I think it's, with essay films, for me, it takes a little bit of adjustment time, <laughs> I think. Like, certainly with this film, like most essay films that I watch personally, I need like 15 minutes to like, into the film to be like, what's happening? What, 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 where am I coming from? Like, what's, where's my identif identification point? Like, how am I 
interpreting the stuff that's coming at me, you know, um, I'm always trying to like kind of navigate and maybe just because I'm such a mainstream cinema person, you know, I'm just always looking for, you know, a, a guiding hand, you know. Um, and so this film, you know, because there's so much um, kind of just footage, footage, footage coming at me, I was just like, I was super riveted. Um, but yeah, I was trying to figure out how I was supposed to be interpreting a lot of it. Um, but I really, I thought it was so powerful. All of the clips from um, different films and different performances and and then the kind of footage on the street, which I really want to know how that was, um, you know, gotten and how, uh, you know, you see lots of moments where um, people kind of look at her and realize what's happening and then you cut, you know? <laughs> so I always like want to know what's going on outside of the film in that moment. Um, so I think it's really, it's like riveting and compelling in those ways too. Um, yeah, I, I really liked it. You know, I wondered if I, I also enjoyed this film and I can be pretty skeptical of the essay film genre mm-hmm. because I think Chung Min, you're totally correct in saying it can be just super indulgent <laughs> um, and it can be indulgent for filmmakers who aren't actually particularly talented filmmakers. <laughs> like I, I don't want to be harsh, but I think that sometimes that happens. It's a, it's a genre that um, maybe young filmmakers start out trying their hand at. And um, so it's not, we're not always getting the strongest, um, the strongest essay films. Um, yeah. Because it is experimental yeah. because there is no rules. So people tend to do whatever they like with their material. So it tends to be a mishmash in that sense, I think. Yeah, and I I don't know. I, I always kind of veer in this direction, but I, I think that because she was a woman behind the camera, that any type of self-indulgence I felt, I'm just much more forgiving. Yeah. Um, and I was looking back at Sunday in Peking, and I had forgotten that Marker actually collaborated with Agnes Varda on that particular mm-hmm. film. And Agnes Varda is somebody who I think makes incredible, if not explicit es- essay films, films that veer towards the essayist, essayistic. Um, so... Uh, yeah, I wondered if maybe that was at play or if, if there's something about like feminine sensibilities in essay films that I'm particularly drawn towards. Um, last week, we began a discussion around the ethics of documentary filmmaking and ethnographic documentary filmmaking. Several times in Songs from the North, Catherine, you've already kind of pointed to this. People in front of the camera ask you, the filmmaker, to stop filming is there anything troubling about Yu's approach to filmmaking? Or more specifically, is there anything troubling about her approach to making a film on this particular subject, being North Korea? Well, you can certainly see the the like panic in people's eyes, I think, or the kind of um, incrimination that, um, that our filmmaker is facing in a way, like there you can see all of these things kind of um flash across people's face you know um but at the same time uh because there's such a kind of media blackout <laughs> around north korea i i just think it's i don't know it, i guess i get more nervous in the scenes where she is filming children quite a bit mm-hmm. Um, and there's even quite a few moments where the kids are even like, what are you doing? Go away, you yeah. know? And um, and those are moments where I'm like, oh, boy. Um, but I guess with – I think I was more um, curious about how this was taking place and whether or not it was obvious that she was filming, you know, um, and how she was able to – I don't know, um, to navigate the questions that inevitably would would arise from obvious filming versus kind of surreptitiously trying to figure out a way, you know, with whatever camera that she would have, you know, to some somehow like surreptitiously be filming and then people realize and then they're mad, you know, I don't know. I think like sometimes we have to remember like making a film like this is kind of like challenging the state party collusion because... Uh, for I would say a lot of uh, people living under an authoritarian regime uh, to be filmed is to be involved in some kind of political activity. That's the, that's exactly why they would try to shy away from the camera. 
because uh, they don't want their image to be used in any kind of political way,、mm-hmm. and because that would be seen as an act of subversion. So I feel like if there is a difficulty, it is becoming,、uh, it is, it is coming from this kind of、uh, very difficult tension between、uh, the filmmaker and the whole regime she's facing, and like how how is she going to、uh, film those people without, you know, endangering their personal safety?、Uh, We have to remember、uh, North Korea is a country that. You know,、uh, executes people randomly or just like、mm-hmm. out of the、uh, whimsical complaints of their leader. So、um, sometimes, just like as a just ordinary citizen, you don't know what you would do or what you do would pro- provoke the regime. So I feel like that's the first kind of、uh, difficulty, and the second kind is that,、uh, like as a film. A、uh, female filmmaker coming from South Korea. I think、uh, a lot of North Korean people have a certain kind of expectation of her. Like she has a gender role that she has to play. That、mm-hmm. why aren't you in th- South Korea taking care of your father? Like why don't you be a good wife? Why are you wandering around doing this? You know,、uh, thing that we consider to be meaningless or useless. So I think that's like a kind of personal difficulty that the filmmaker has to overcome. Yeah, and I—I I mean, it does make me nervous.、Um, she, it does make me nervous that she's filming people in a country where any any hint or not even a hint, as fabrications of party disloyalty can lead to your execution、mm-hmm. or the execution of your family.、Um, and I don't. It's not that certainly isn't addressed. You know what measures did she take to make sure that she was being as safe as possible with the, these people's lives that she's filming?、Um, and secondly, I, I think that's she never really gets into how violent the dictatorship is in、mm-hmm. North Korea, which is I think why even though certainly there is a critique of North Korea going on, you called it a scathing critique, Changmin, and I said it was a bit more balanced. And I think、mm-hmm. the reason why I felt it was balanced is because she didn't go to the obvious points of like. The leaders of this country are executing people at、mm-hmm. random at their own whims,、um, and I was curious as to why she didn't. Well, there was a the scene、um, where she's talking to her father and asking if any of his friends、oh, who went、true. to the north、yeah. were still alive, and and he said, "I don't think so." <laughs> like <laughs> that's true. That's、um, true. And it was just because they had come from the south to the north, and they were seen as somehow spies, even though they. You know, according to the father, had these kind of aligning ideologies. That's right, and that's when he says, "If they could have been executed, then there was no hope for me、yeah. to go up there." Right?、Yeah. Isn't that what he's? Yeah, yeah that's that, true. Yeah, I think,、um, in a certain sense, this film is the perfect counterpart to something in Peking, ideologically speaking. Yeah. Right, because、uh, Marker made the film when people still believe in communism and their. A kind of revolutionary hope that is going to、um, break in you know ten years, and I think this is how、um, after you know sixty years people see those、uh, communist regimes and how they are treating their people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.、Um, and in the U.S., we receive. Very little information on North Korea, and in my experience, it's usually in the form of satire, lots of jokes at the expense of the current leader Kim Jong Un. Catherine, I don't know if you would generally agree with this,、um, but it did make、yeah. me wonder. Changmin, is the media coverage of North Korea different in Taiwan or in Asia? Is there a different? It just seems like a joke. Like it's always a punchline, generally. I、yeah. feel like in American media coverage, and I don't know if it's. Different th- elsewhere, like like the interview, right?、Mm-hmm. The film. So I feel like、uh, in Asia in general, like we tend to emphasize the role China plays in this kind of Korea situation, just because, like you know, back then North Korea can be a country just because of China's support,、mm-hmm. and so、um, North Korea can do all these things basically because of the backing of the Chinese Big Brother. So it is hard.、Um, And I think、uh, recently North Korea has a little bit 
I know, gone out of control just because of of the uh their nuclear test and etc. So I feel like, um, in Asia we 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 will try to put uh Korea affairs into their context, but not really. But like, but we I feel like especially Japan can really feel the threat uh of North Korea because of you know they are closer to uh Korea's. And also because um, Japan played a very important part in the Korean War. Well, I thought it was so interesting, you know, hearing what you're saying, Changmin, that um, if the if the relationship is so kind of symbiotic between North Korea and and this kind of Chinese support, um, and then the whole identity that's being expressed within this film is that North Korea is conf- always perpetually confronting a, a colonialist past, right? And this and this idea of independence and mm-hmm. no no need for um occupiers or regulators or etc 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 um that that because there is this other entity that's always involved that that would go against that ideology. Mm-hmm. Um that they're kind of um, recycling in these myths and 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 narratives within North Korea, so it's kind of interesting how that points out the the contradictions that are kind of beneath. Well, some of is this stuff. there? I think like the only thing common between North Korea and South Korea is their hatred toward Japan. I yeah. think that that's the only thing like they share with each other. Just because even in South Korea, you, you can see you can see that how Korean. Uh, people wanted to be an independent country that is without any kind of Japanese influence, mm-hmm. especially um, industrially speaking. Like that's yeah. why we have Samsung, LG, all these uh, big industries are supported by the state just because they want to get rid of any kind of um, Sony and Panasonic kind of influence. And that, yeah, one of the things that I think this film was extraordinarily useful for me, because I've learned very little of Korean history, was just sitting us down to walk through that Japanese colonial history, the end of World War II, and the formation of the 30th parallel, and just sort of how painful that was, how arbitrary that was, the way in which North Korea understands itself to be trying to reunite the country. No one's ever sort of explained it to me in those Mm -hmm. terms before. All right, we'll end there. Again, Songs from the North plays at Film Scene Tuesday, February 16th at 6 p.m. as part of Bijou Film Forum. A post-screening Q&A will follow with Dr. Sang Siak Yoon, coordinator of the Korean Language Program, Bradley K. Martin, visiting assistant professor in the School of Journalism and Mass Communication, and author of Under the Loving Care of the Fatherly Leader, North Korea and the Kim Dynasty, and Michael Gibbeser, co-director of film and video production in the Department of Cinematic Arts. For more information on Bijou Film Forum... Check out Bijou's website, bijou.uiwa.edu. After a quick break, we'll be back to discuss 10 Things I Hate About You. Today, you ate Greek yogurt. You took the train. You wondered why people spend so much time reading celebrity blogs. You read a celebrity blog. You planned a workout. You skipped it. You did all the things that one normally does the day before a devastating earthquake shakes the community to the ground. You never know when the day before is the day before. Prepare for tomorrow at ready.gov slash today. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Bijou Banter on KRUI, Iowa City. This is a show dedicated to discussing films playing locally at Film Scene. Let's move on to our second film, 10 Things I Hate About You. Chung Min, I'm excited to hear what you thought of this film. Sure. Even after almost 20 years, 10 Things I Hate About You is still fresh as ever among other young adult films from the same period. Of course, one might attribute its appeal to the two stars, the late Heath Ledger and Joseph Gordon-Levitt, that portrayed two drastically different types of the high school Prince Charming. On the one hand, Heath is the rebel without a chaos type of guy. At least that is how people perceive him in the school. In a sense, he's James Dean that is more comfortable in his own skin. On the other, we have Joseph as our four-eyed nerd who wants to hook up with some girl by being a French tutor. This crisscrossing of their paths makes this campus drama more unpredictable and surprising, that is, to the extent within the genre limitations. 
the effervescent energy also comes from all the girls in the film. The film itself is a loose adaptation of the Shakespeare, uh, Shakespearean classic, The Taming of the Shrew. However, its gender dynamic is lively and not as rigid as other YA films. Cat, played by Julia Stiles, is the narrative center of the film. She's somewhat sophisticated, well-read, and overly cynical, quoting Marx and Frankfurt School terror, uh, terrorist <laughs> at will. But there is this simplicity to her character that makes her less obnoxious, at least to us. Or to put it another way, obnoxiously fascinating and charming. Furthermore, all the supporting roles are full of flavor. In particular, Alison Janney's appearance as Mr. Perky almost overshadows the aura of the young stars mentioned above. As a guidance counselor, what she does is sitting in front of her computer and writing her adult novel, decided between pulsating member and breastwurst. You even want to see her more in the film. So, my fellow Benjurers, how do you like the film? Did you see it when you came out? Well, first of all, I think that Miss Perky is my future. <laughs> I think that's just like me in 10, 15 years. Who knows? Um, 20 years? Uh, no, I loved this film. And I remember it being kind of kind of risque uh, for its time um, because it is kind of more of a – I guess it's PG-13, but um, but it, it it's pretty uh, confrontational when it comes to high school sex and um, – and like the kind of effect that it has on girls and their self-esteem and all of that. Um, and it's pretty brutal on guys. <laughs> so I thought um, that it was pretty kind of snarky and, and nice for uh, for the teen fair when I saw it. I liked it a lot. I liked it a lot too, but I remember thinking uh, I, like, I didn't understand – a lot about it that I now understand is is being done with a kind of a wink and a nudge. Um, like, I just, I was, like, really obsessed with the fact that the girl who plays Bianca, right? She's the younger sister. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I just, like, didn't get her appeal. Yeah. And I kept saying that in high school. I was like, I just don't get it. Like, Julia Stiles <laughs> is, like, more interesting, like, both her character and to like look at and like I just didn't like get at all Bianca's appeal but not watching it now I was sort of like yeah that's like what high school's like like you're like I don't get it like I don't get that girl's appeal I don't get that guy's appeal like because high school is such a weird social environment that people become like celebrities within their high school and it's like not based on anything at all it's just for some reason people are drawn to them so I I enjoyed it more um, this time around and it made me like Think about how naive I was when I was in high school watching YA films and being like, I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> so my first impression of Joseph Gordon-Levitt in the film was, oh my God, he's so green back then. <laughs> I think he looks very young. <laughs> yeah. I think there's definitely a transforming trajectory of his star image here from 10 Things to Brick, then to Mysterious Game, in a sense, a gradual maturation and degradation. Uh, was he a well-known figure back in the late 90s and early 2000s? Well, uh, he was in a little show <laughs> called Third Rock from the Sun. <laughs> His hair was super long Super then, long hair. He played like um, the oldest alien in the youngest body. Um, <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I never really watched that show. That was like the the funny thing about uh, about his character was that the the aliens got kind of arbitrarily placed in these bodies, and he was the oldest one in the youngest body. Um, so it, that was like part of his charm um, and humor. And also, Larissa Olnick, who plays Bianca, was his girl played his girlfriend on Third Rock. Oh, get out. So I think that was part of the, uh, you know, intertextual Shakespearean feat. Yeah, the Shakespearean <laughs> Brought them together. Yeah. Finally, at last. Yeah, but he he was pretty well known from that show because it was a pretty popular show. Um, and he kind of grew up on that show before this. Yeah. I don't have anything to add to that. <laughs> so, yeah, like basically I knew who he was. Like I didn't really get his appeal either and I still kind of don't. Um, but... Yeah, I I knew who he was when I was watching the film. He has that kind of indie vibe, I think, especially with all his indie films. Well, and Brick was such a good turning point for him because it was within the high school realm, um, and he he's got such a baby face. Um, but uh, 
he really was like pushing the boundaries like with uh way more um like kind of violence and noir elements and all of that stuff and that was a perfect transitional film for him to be moving into kind of more uh serious indie roles um yeah, where he's like more experimental, both sexually and and but even. Once upon a time, Johnny Depp had a baby face. That's true. <laughs> yeah, Justin Gordon-Levitt still has a baby face. Like yeah. I just, I I don't not like him. I just can't take him like fully seriously when I see him on screen. Yeah, because I think he's twelve. <laughs> so okay, I'm not familiar with the soundtrack of the film, but I was told it was quite fitting. I know can take my eyes off you, and you have to admit it was quite a successful performance by Heath Ledger in the film. So, Leah and Catherine, do you have other favorite melodic moments, or more theoretically speaking, what is the reason of this combination of pop songs and young adult culture? I feel like I'm just like the authority. On this movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, letters to Cleo was having a moment during <laughs> during this film uh this was like um, a a certain interesting moment in like indie rock uh because there were a lot of new bands with female lead singers and it was the kind of pop punk type uh moment as well um so like save ferris uh shows up in this film and letters to cleo is the main uh one that gets featured several times um so it, it like the fact that this uh, soundtrack did so well and I, I i mean i don't want to brag but bought the soundtrack <laughs> um, <laughs> um yeah it just it did super well i think because it just tapped into um this kind of uh pop punk feminist sensibility that cat carries through in her character as well where she's like talking about bikini kill but she likes this like poppy band that uh, makes her like, like kind of downplays her militancy a little bit because it's cute and charming, uh, even though she has the ideology of like a of a riot girl. Um, so yeah, that that was kind of a huge part of the the subtext of this film was like pop punk feminism uh, and and the. Can you the define bands. that term, pop punk feminism? What does that even mean? Well, this is like the next generation after Bikini Kill, after mm-hmm. Kathleen Hanna. Um, so this is like um, where we start getting hazy, like between um, between your Bikini Kills and let's say your No Doubts. There was this kind of transition era where there were um, these, yeah, kind of rock bands, but very poppy um but and that we're le- you know moving into post-feminism, post-feminism. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know like not not necessarily uh buying into all of the ideology it was like softening the ideology was softening from riot girl um moving into the, to your no doubts uh where you have like a a lead singer who's writing and and, and but then the rest of the band is guys so you have like a symbolic woman okay. anyway Okay. <laughs> um, I could go on. <laughs> I feel like uh, I should confess that this movie opens with a Bare Naked Ladies song. And, um, really, really liked and continue to like the Bare Naked Ladies. Saw them a lot in concert when I was in high school. And of course, so like I started watching the film and I haven't seen it probably for 10 years. I started watching the film and I'm like, oh, the Bare Naked Ladies. This is amazing. But of course, the joke of that entire scene is that um not, like cat is way too cool for the bare naked ladies and mm-hmm. only these like high school girls were like pretty basic although that wasn't a term back then uh love it and i was like yeah it sounds like my high school experience <laughs> <laughs> sounds about right <laughs> all right uh well we should probably wrap up there again 10 things i hate about you plays at film scene tomorrow night february 13th at 11 p.m as part of bijou after hours for more on bijou after hours check out bijou's website bijou.uiowa edu before we move on to our third and final film let's check on the weather it's currently 20 degrees in iowa city fair and breezy tonight uh mostly clear with a low of negative three tomorrow saturday mostly sunny with a high of 13 degrees you're listening to bijou banter on krui iowa city Bijou Banter is a show dedicated to discussing films playing locally at Film Scene. 
In our final segment, we'll be discussing Brooklyn. And joining us to discuss Brooklyn is UI grad, current law student, and film lover, John Rigby. Welcome to Bijou Banter, John. Thanks for having me. Catherine, can you share your impressions of Brooklyn before we dive in? Yes, I'm so excited to talk about this film. So in the 1950s, Brooklyn, New York, saw a huge influx of Irish immigrants seeking work and general opportunity. And this film tells the story of one of those immigrants. Ailish Lacey cannot find meaningful work within her small town in County Wexford, and she feels socially out of step because she can't quite see how her future will unfold. She's been sponsored by her sister and a priest to travel to America for a decent full-time job amidst a network of similar Irish women. Ailish never expects to feel at home in Brooklyn, but slowly she builds experiences and relationships that allow her to prosper. She meets a young Italian guy who declares his devotion early and escorts her to a comfortable mindset, but she remains somewhat hesitant. She remembers her Irish home and family and longs for them. Soon, tragedy necessitates her return, and we see the newly confident young woman negotiate with two identities, one she's quite familiar with and one she must decide to pursue at the expense of breaking with the past. A suitor back in Ireland, played by the ubiquitous Donald Gleeson, appears and seems to personify all her previous desires. But how will she account for her new desires and aspirations? The story is both nostalgic and sentimental in its conceptions of home. The film makes visible the alternate definitions found in heritage, place, people, and an imagined future. All this is expected and veers into cheesy romanticism at times, but uh, and one can't help but kind of roll their eyes at the America is the land of prosper and progress backdrop to the entire narrative. Uh, but who are we kidding? We like this movie because of Saoirse Ronan, who brings quiet intelligence and sensitivity, as she does to all of her roles. She's able to infuse a fairly simple story with depth and simmering tension just with her facial expressions. But despite my love for Saoirse, I can't quite understand why this film is so thunderously applauded. It received a standing ovation at the Sundance Film Festival last year, and as we know, is nominated for several Oscars. Uh, did our guest and my fellow banterers see something in this film that I didn't? How can we account for this fierce adoration? Uh, I love this movie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I I think it's I think it was one of my favorites of the years for a lot of reasons i think um first and foremost the performance by ronan which i think we're going to get into more specifically in a little bit um i think is probably probably my favorite in um in addition to um the great chemistry that she displays with both um donald gleason and emery cohen who plays her um italian suitor i guess in brooklyn uh sort of a working class uh plumber comes from a large very boisterous and funny Italian family. Um, and I think the uh, sort of very, very um, charming and very specific uh, supporting characters are also um, winning. I really love um, Jim Broadbrent as the priest who helps her sort of find her way in Brooklyn. Um, I really enjoyed the scenes at the boarding house where she's staying. I thought... Um, Mrs. Keogh, who's the sort of ringleader of the boarding house and her um, merry band of, of uh, boarding house um, girls were fantastic and funny. And I am thrilled to learn that uh, heading over here, I was doing some research um, that the BBC recently picked up a mini series to um, feature uh, Mrs. Keogh, who's the head uh, headmaster of the boarding house along with the girls. So wow. I'm just, I'm just thrilled that this oh. story is continuing. Um, I'm not sad about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and I have some some problems, I guess, with the last 15 minutes, which I don't want to give too many spoilers away and talk about the end specifically, but that's really about the only time when I found myself um, sort of rolling my eyes a little bit. I mean, it did definitely tug at my heartstrings without being overly sentimental and syrupy, and um, I just think, I mean, this has been made a big issue, I think, in a lot of the reviews that I've read and a lot of the overwhelming um, adoration for it, but you just don't see these type of movies that I think are um, very, I, I don't want to say simply made, but there's a restraint to them that I think is really, um, is really great for a, for a 
you know, a, a December release where it's like not too over overwhelmingly emotional. Um, but it, it, it's a, it's a great film for adults. And if you're interested in a love story that doesn't try to beat you over the head with its emotional, um, punch. And I think this is probably a great film for you. I don't know. I really enjoyed it just because I think it was a rare movie that Hollywood doesn't really make anymore. At least like even in the indie world, you don't really see very often, I guess. Oh, I have mixed feelings about this film. I, I really enjoyed watching it. It felt like a, a pleasure film for me. It felt like to me watching Downton Abbey or something where I, 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 I'm not going to like apologize for liking the experience of watching it, but mm-hmm. I don't know if I thought as highly of it as you did, John. Um, I think that Sersha Ronan is doing incredible work with that performance because she really is carrying the film, but she does it in a way where you, it's full of all kinds of restraint. Um, and I appreciated that about her character. Um, I appreciated that it is a woman's story. Um, I I appreciated the general restraint of the film, but it it didn't have any restraint when it came to like the just totally scrubbing up of American history, <laughs> which is like I can't overlook that. Like I can't just be like, well, never mind about that and the kind of problematics that builds in the collective American ideology that we're constantly battling. I don't know that. So I just have like kind of mixed feelings about whether or not I want to review this as or laud this as a great piece of art. I don't know. What do you think, Changmin? I think considering this film involves um, a plumber and the discussion of the overflowing of sewage, I think this film is entirely scrubbed clean. <laughs> right? Because, like, I feel it's... So I feel like, again, it's scrubbed clean and why? Just because this is a very, very romanticizing vision of you know, your grandparents' generation and how they move here to pursue an American dream, how they can find their training, their standing, their work, their position in a society so they can make themselves useful. I think that's the ideology here. And and I know, I feel like, so I know, especially in this film, like, they are living in Brooklyn, but there's no black people in the film. Almost no, right? Yeah, I, I, think, I think there's like a, a shot on, on the, like a street corner. Yes. And, and there's like a black woman. And yes. you're like, hey, that was, and I was like, that's one black person in at, America. That person, poor Spike in Lee. Probably watch this movie. Like, Son of <laughs> so, and, and again, I feel like the, the, the film has a timeless feel. Like mm-hmm. it can be made in the early twentieth century. Like you would, you would have no problem to see. Okay, uh, this is the first generation of immigrants coming into America to, uh, to to get a better life. So, like, just like I feel like the the contour of this film is unclear because it has that quality of of you know being floating uh, in time. Like, it yeah. doesn't have an anchorage in that sense. So, I mean, but I, then again, I do like this film because I feel like the performance is particularly strong. Um, and it's not overacting. It's not, it's not like Leonardo DiCaprio kind of acting. It's not like the big short <laughs> kind of acting. It's not Christian Bale. So be, every, everybody has their own very, very reserved uh, style of acting. They, they kind of um, insinuate... Ki- one kind of emotion and they they would tell you what they really think through their gestures. So I think that's a a big plus of the film. But in general, the script itself or the uh the set itself is kind of problematic. Yeah, to to bring up one moment that I thought was interesting and uh and complex uh in this otherwise kind of rose-colored uh, <laughs> uh, depiction. There's a great scene um, where Ailish is volunteering um, and uh, you see this kind of older generation of Irishmen um, who are by now kind of, they're basically like uh, abject in society. You know, they're kind of, I don't know if they're explicitly homeless, but some of them are um, or just like completely down on their luck. 
But there's this great kind of moment where um, we're told, okay, so this is um, an earlier generation that helped to build some of these huge monuments in, uh, and and certainly many, many died <laughs> while making these, you know, br- the Brooklyn Bridge and, you know, um, other uh, huge construction projects. Um, and that now they're just kind of forgotten um, in society or kind of they were used and tossed aside. Um, and that's kind of a more complex moment. And I guess that moment um, I was looking for more of, I think, in this film in order to be like standing up and thunderously applauding it. You know what I mean? Like I wanted to see um, Ailish contend with what would certainly be um, some sort of kind of second class treatment in uh, in society and some sort of, um, you know, like exploitation in a more explicit way um, or, you know, so- something that like kind of nodded to the darkness that's going on here. Like I, I kept thinking about while I was watching this, um, I don't, I can't remember uh, if any of y'all have seen Carol, um, but there's this similar kind of, uh, you know, kind of rose colored aesthetic um, <laughs> to Carol, but it works because there's this kind of simmering subtext of subversion and um and the kind of breakdown of the nuclear family and and the contradictions within it and and this kind of discovery um of of love and and uh care between these two women and so that like i don't know that that kind of juxtaposition with carol super worked for me in the nostalgic aesthetic you know whereas this one Maybe it's because I just I saw Brooklyn right after seeing Carol, <laughs> um, but that I was a little bit like confronted with the the rare like relatively lack of you know of complex subversive or I don't know detail when it comes to that. What do you have to say to that, John? Well, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm glad that you welcome mentioned. to Bijou Banjo. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually really bummed I didn't get to talk about Third Rock from the Sun. I, mean, I feel like. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I've had a lot to contribute there too. Um, I'm really glad you mentioned the scene at the, I guess you can call it like a shelter house. I get the, the volunteering scene that you referenced. I think that is a turning point for many reasons in the, in the film. I think it's when she first sort of, she's been having this homesickness when she's in Brooklyn and she's having a tough time adjusting with her job and she's having a tough time adjusting with the women living in the boarding house with her. And then she volunteers to help out. And I think it, I think, they are explicitly referred to as as homeless. I know that the girls in the or the women in the boarding house say that they smell and that they'd never yeah. do it again after doing. And so, and I, I'm pretty sure that they they do call them homeless. But um, that is a a big scene because it I think gives her the sense of of the Irish identity, uh, the Irish American identity that she's now becoming a part of, um, which I thought was really beautiful and well done. And it has this sort of gorgeous two minute. Um, sort of Gaelic, I, I believe it's Gaelic, I, I would mm-hmm. assume, um, Gaelic song sort of as like a, a um, sort of play over it as she's sort of looking around um, and discovering her her heritage that, um, you know, is, is with it, with her in Brooklyn. And, um, and then after that, I, I believe she quickly meets um, uh, Tony and her life starts to change a little bit. So that is really a, a crucial turning point in the movie that I really enjoyed. I would have liked to see a little bit more, I agree, complicated sort of... Um, you know, I, I don't want to say dark, but uh, a, a little bit more of a complex um, sort of crux to the film. But I don't know. At the end, when, to be honest, when I saw it, I left and I was charmed by it. And I found myself, um, you know, thinking a little bit about it. But as I've only seen it once. And as time um, has passed, I think it's just grown on me. Um, and uh, that I think speaks to, uh, again, the performance, but also just a lot of like the winning scenes. It's it's really funny. I mean, the the boarding mm-hmm. house scenes are hilarious. I think um, even just like a lot of characters who come in for a brief second, I think really give it a, a delightful spin to it. Um, I can never pronounce her name correctly, but um, Don Draper's second wife in Mad Men, Jessica Paré, I think has oh, really, yeah. is really funny. And um, when she helps her try on the bathing suit, I think is a really funny, um, just a snapshot of small town of a, a big city life. That's really funny. And I, I, I don't know. I just think it has a lot of different parts that I really, um, I really enjoyed. Um, yeah. I mean, I think your criticism is, is certainly, um, 
is is you know on point. I do think yes. I do think that uh, <laughs> I do think that there are some problems with this with this movie, but over overall, I found it to be uh, a really really charming time. I think this film is interesting just because I think this film is the kind of film that people in the fifties would want to make mm-hmm. yeah. and would want their people to see. And Carol, mm-hmm. on the other hand, is a film that can only be made now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the difference. Because like he doesn't I I feel like Brooklyn has that kind of family appeal. Yeah. Right? That's certainly true. Yeah, a lot of the uh reviews that I read would like compare this movie to like um a snapshot of your grandparents that they would want to explain the story and this is the kind of uh you know rosy tale of of them meeting and and growing up in 1950s. Um Brooklyn. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, but so I want to go into uh, more of the uh, names associated with this whole production. So Brooklyn is based on the novel uh, by Irish author Colm Tobin, I think is how you say his last name, um, and adapted for the screen by English phenom Nick Hornby of High Fidelity and About a Boy fame. Uh, I think it's very interesting that in 2009, he abruptly switched to adaptations featuring female protagonists, writing the screenplays for An Education, Wild, and then Brooklyn. I absolutely adored An Education, and I thought that it was quite dark, actually. Um, But uh, are y'all fans of Hornby's style, and can you see his signature within this narrative? Yeah, I mean, I think... um I, I think this is actually my favorite adaptation of the of the three that he's done, uh, the f- three film adaptations that he's done. I think um, this is probably certainly the funniest. I don't remember Wild being a very um, oh, no. laughable uh, <laughs> Gosh. romp. Um, if I remember correctly, the first scene has her tearing off her toenail, which is just the sign of things to come. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think the sort of funny, witty back and forth banter that you see in um, things like High Fidelity and and fever pitch. I mean, I think that's, that's apparent here. Um, and it's, it's lighter. I mean, it doesn't have a dark, a dark edge to it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm thrilled that he's sort of, I mean, he's still writing novels, but I'm thrilled that he's really found, I think, a niche in, uh, writing screenplays. And this is his third and this is his second Oscar nomination. And I don't think he has a shot to win, but, um, but it's nice that he's getting some good recognition, uh, for, for this, uh, for the screenplay that he wrote. I I far preferred Wild, but I don't know if that was because of the screenplay. Because you like hiking? Yeah. <laughs> we get it. <laughs> I do love hiking. I'm just a version of myself at this point. Um, I Yeah, but I don't know if I thought long and hard enough to, like, cipher out what was, like, the, the way in which it was filmed, that's that sound uh, escape or the score that was happening in Wild was really interesting to me. Um I guess I like the screenplay a lot. I like the way that the flashbacks were handled. Um, it's funny, though, because I actually just read uh, his most recent novel, I think, which was called Funny Girl. And that had, that's a 19, I think it's 1950s, 1950s set in London story about a, a 1950s girl who is not super unlike um, Ailish in this story in that she comes from a very small town and moves to London to seek uh, fame and fortune to some degree. Um, and it had all the lightness that Brooklyn has. Um, I would be curious, though, to read the original book that Brooklyn is based mm-hmm. on. Like, to see, like, is it as light? I can't imagine it's as light. It feels like it, there must be darker moments in that book. Just, I would imagine because it would have to be yeah. longer. <laughs> like, <laughs> there'd need to be more conflict, right? Mm-hmm. I know. I feel like. Yeah. I mean, I haven't seen Wild, but like out of an education and this film, they all have a certain kind of delicacy that is um, there, I would say, um, I don't know, author's prominent signature. Because, I mean, a little bit more, I mean, you would lose its kind of lightness. And Mm -hmm. uh, especially of these three films about like... um, a certain kind of educational journey that these female protagonists have to, to go through. So I don't know. I mean, 
it's hard f- I, just because of its lightness. I mean, it is a merit, but it's also a shortcoming. Like I, 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 I don't know how to judge uh, this kind of female narrative. Like um, this kind of as long as you work hard, you be mm-hmm. get through, overcome all these difficulties. Kind of narrative. Well, and what's so funny is that I know that uh, what I kind of wanted from from this film is maybe also like a moment that appears in in education, which is a great little exchange uh, between uh, Emma Thompson, who's like a school marm, uh, and um, the the like private school principal, and uh, Carrie Mulligan, who's uh, literally asking this older woman like what's all of this for like why why are you just you know why are you educating me in this particular way when i have such a limited opportunity in culture to enact any any change you know and it's not enough to educate us you have to tell us why you're doing it um and and so like that moment which is so complex um in this kind i mean it's certainly a much darker story uh of kind of exploitation um, but, uh, but I guess I wanted a little bit more of that too, like that, um, that Ailish might, um, question her, you know, her role as a woman in society and, and how the, the difference between her performance as a woman, maybe in Ireland and in America, which, you know, I, but I don't know, maybe there's, it's just written in the book in such a way that there are these kind of insular communities, um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know that much about the book other than, um, that, uh, Columns Hoban wrote it after he came to America and was teaching, um, and then was very, very homesick for Ireland. And so wrote, then was inspired to write this. Um, so that's kind of an interesting backdrop to this. Okay. So I, ru- I really want to get to kind of, uh, uh, the big topic, <laughs> In my discussion <laughs> questions here. <laughs> Guys, gird your loins. Um, so critics have either loved this film's nostalgia or downplayed it, as I mentioned before. Um, A.O. Scott of the New York Times called the film gently nostalgic, which is almost like spit take unbelievable to me. Um, uh, so the adoration for the white immigrant experience is so bonkers here um, that I kind of actively feel bad for taking so much pleasure in the film. Um, and... So how do y'all see this film fitting into the wider discourse of Hollywood's whiteness problem, especially this year with all of the controversy over the Oscars, um, maybe the inability for the industry to really confront the whiteness problem? Um, It's that coming into maybe why this film is being uh, focused upon in its, its sweet, simple narrative. It's kind of whitewashing, literal whitewashing. I don't know. I mean, I think I yeah. You you bring up a good point. Um, I I think even more than um, than some of the mm, well, how can I say this? I, it really is like a love letter to a particular time and a place in American history, and I think we can all find some mm-hmm. criticism in that. Um, I think just the evocation of the Brooklyn Dodgers and the sort of um, role that a that a really really sort of uh, hometown home hometown team has on a family and sort of on a community i think um is just sort of a um that might be a nick hornby thing too because as we know and yeah, things yeah. like fever pitch and a lot of his characters have these sort of obsessions and these sort of things that define them in childish and really immature ways um i actually i haven't read the book either so i, I don't know how that transitioned from uh page to the screen um but I, you know i mean i think um i think some of the whitewashing, I guess we can call it is, is a problem. And it does speak to, um, you know, a larger problem, obviously with this year's Academy Awards. And I think we're going to talk a little bit more about the sort of the Oscar conversation later, but, um, I don't know. I, I, I feel like this is way above my pay grade in terms of, uh, (laughs) (laughs) if we're able to, no, 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 no. I, uh, I think if we were able to, you know, answer this and, very, very cogent terms, we'd all have jobs working, uh, you know, elsewhere. So I don't know. I mean, I think... And this is not to say that I didn't think it was like a lovely, nice film. You know, it's just like the idea that 
it would be so embraced. You know what I mean? Like that that I'm trying to suss out, you know, mm-hmm. that like why would this film be so embraced unless it maybe is symptomatic of this kind of larger issue where these kinds of stories are the stories that Hollywood wants to clap for, right. you know, the, versus yeah, this is, this a is, Chirac. <laughs> yeah, this is a very – I will say this about its reception and its, its being awarded with three awards and this is a, just a very – easy movie to love if you're a white you know if you have any if, irish if or, if, or yeah, italian right well, if, you're, if, you're, if you're if you're an older you know uh white american it's just a it's an easy movie to fall in love with i think it because it does have the uh very soft very sort of romanticized version a uh, vision rather of um of a, a you know a, a borough that's been a part of the american story for um, for a long time. And I think, um, I think that it's, yeah, uh, the Oscars love that these movies or the Academy, I should say, love that these movies are being made because, um, it is, it's dramatic and it has really charming, funny parts and it's, um, a romantic sort of charming movie. And I think, you know, I like those movies, but uh, yeah. I, I understand that. Um, well, it's almost a, impossible to not, but right. at the same time, like it's so weird for this year, you know, like this year and even last year, like it uh, seems like all I kept thinking when I was watching, not all I kept thinking, but one of the things I was thinking a lot about is the really dangerous rhetoric that we've seen since let's say, Oh wait, um, this idea, people will say things like this isn't your father's America anymore, or this uh, we need to take America back and we need <laughs> to make America great again. And there's all kinds of dangerous sort of ideas that are wrapped up in those really pat phrases. But I think one of the things that when people say that, they're literally picturing the setting of this film. They're literally thinking like, yeah, my father's America would like look like this really charming borough of Brooklyn where like everyone was dressed in really nice peacoats and like went to the <laughs> dance on Saturday and did their community service and and it's just like I think that's why it creates such a conflict in me because mm-hmm. it seems to reinforce reinforce this myth. It's not even nostalgia. It's like a just complete fabricated myth about um, the American dream and 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 uh, how America was built. So I, I don't know that tension there is. I think yeah. putting this film side by side with Chirac can very well expose all the social and cultural taboos that we still have. I'm not saying like I yeah. like Shira, mm-hmm. but like why Shira is like all is only praised, for example, um in those prominent prominent media outlets like the New York Times, the New Yorker, and mm-hmm. how Brooklyn is being praised in Hollywood. Like you can see all these kind of cultural battles between high and low culture or I don't know. I feel like yeah. it, it, I mean of course like I think the Academy wouldn't pick uh Chirac for various reasons. But like again, I think um giving so many nominations to Brooklyn says a lot of things. I mean, beyond the film itself. Yeah. Well, what do we think? Sorry to go back to what was the previous topic, but what do we think about this story being conceived originally from an Irish-born writer who has sort of had Ailish's similar journey? I mean, he, I believe he still lives, I believe Tobin still lives in New York. I know he's a teacher and a, I, I think he's a contributor to the New York Review of Books and, um, I mean, I think New York is just as part of as much of his life story now as as Ireland is. So, does that sort of qualm your anxiety a little bit that it's it <laughs> is? I mean, if this book were written by a, I was going to say Nick Hornby, but he's a he's a Brit, so that doesn't, that wouldn't work either. <laughs> if this book were written were written by a, a you know a, a New York voice, an Edward Burns or a Edward Norton or something like that. I mean, some someone who has a very Americanized sort of uh, you know sense of storytelling with that sort of um make you even more angry or because it comes from you know a a voice of a of a you know someone who's had a similar story to Ailish does that help at all or um well I, I mean it's not the issue of the book being written it's more the issue of the film being made right I mean it's 
that's where the billions of dollars come in and the decisions to make certain put certain representations and stories on screen for the U.S. and the world. So uh, that's kind of where the conflict comes in for me personally. Unfortunately, we have to wrap up, you guys. Um, No, this is excellent. Uh, Brooklyn opens at Film Scene today and will play throughout the weekend and following week for a complete list of showtimes. Check out Film Scene's website, icfilmscene.org. If you're interested in seeing film that challenges, inspires, educates, and entertains in downtown Iowa City, please check out Film Scene and their website, icfilmscene.org. To learn more about the Bijou Film Board's unique and long-standing role in the exhibition of provocative and engaging cinema in Iowa City, please check out bijou.uiowa.edu. You've been listening to Bijou Banter, Catherines. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Chang Min, it's always a pleasure. Likewise. John, it's been wonderful to have you today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you, John. I'm Leah, and I look forward to more banter next week. <laughs>